Is everyone here? Giles? Gav? Ellie? Where's Paul? Oh, I don't know. Maybe we should go and look for him. No. Paul told us to wait for him here. All right. Take it away, Ellie. Okay, well, as you can see, we're smack in the middle of something who bunker about to record a podcast. I can understand that part of it all right, but can't you explain the wider issues, Ellie? Yes, all right. Gav, would you mind drawing the curtains? Sure. All ready? Slide one. Tell me, who's that? Uh, Radio Free Scarrow, isn't it? Top of the class, Giles, top of the class. Here's another. Oh, 42 to Doomsday. Thank you very much, Richard. And our old friend? The Missing Episodes podcast. Actually, where is Paul? Hmm, perhaps we should check on him. No, no, Paul told us we should stay here. Look, Ellie, are you going to show us podcast cover art all night? Tell me what they have in common and I might stop. Well, they're all Doctor Who podcasts? Almost right, Giles. The Doctor Who podcasts that people have actually heard of. Yes. Unlike this one. Look, I agreed to join you for this episode, but what's the point if no one's listening? Richard, more promotional effort. Gav, funnier anecdotes. Giles, better science. Let's make this an episode to remember. Where's Paul got to? Oh, it's too late. Let's get cracking. So, hello and welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, that sketch, to make Something Who. Yes, it's Something Who podcast episode 57. I'm Richard, and we're back to discuss a couple of Doctor Who stories about cut-off villages. So first we'll examine third Doctor story, The Demons, from season 8. And after that, we'll have a look at 13th Doctor story, Village of the Angels, from the most recent series. So with me to make this a local podcast for local people, we have, as our special guest, cosplayer and Who fan about town, Ellie, also known as TARDIS Monkey. Hello. We've got science and astronomy writer, Giles. It's me. And graphic designer and Dalek expert, Gav. Hello. Uh, A scheduling issue means that Paul is sadly missing this time, but we hope he'll be back soon. So, first up, The Demons, by Guy Leopold. Mm. Or, I guess, as as, as we know them, Barry Letts and Robert Sloan. Uh, And directed by Chris Barry. I guess what was hammered home to me in this one was... The premise, I guess, is there's a rational explanation for everything. I I, I guess that's what you're (laughs) getting. And I suppose probably not unconnected with that is that it's 1970 or 71 and there's something in the air I guess about myths and legends and aliens and so on so anyway who wants to kick us off with some thoughts about the demons yes you've you've only just pointed out that the um the chariots of the gods connection I mean that's 68 Mm. isn't it Yeah. yeah but all of that ancient astronauts thing that that gets kicked off around there and that's interesting considering, yeah, one of the other influences that we might be coming to presumably came up with it all on their own. The idea of 
godlike alien beings influencing influencing our mythology and so on. It's quite shamelessly derivative. Hmm. I think the two biggest influences that jump out I mean I recently read this so it may be it may be a slightly unfair observation but Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke mild spoilers ahead (laughs) it's about a race of aliens who look like the devil who've been influencing earth culture since the dawn of time Mm -hmm. but also that you've got Quatermass and the Pit will still be lingering in the public consciousness about demonic looking creatures in a archaeological dig and superstitious goings-on which turn out to be sort of psychic science related Mm. and I didn't check the broadcast date for this but the Star Trek episode Who Mourns for Adonais which culminates with a godlike creature pointing his finger and shooting his wrath at the, the male lead and the female lead jumps in the way to save the day so isn't that season three of Star Trek? It's quite late on anyway. If it's, if it's Isn't that there. every other episode of Star Trek? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it was 1967 was that episode. Okay, right. It won't have been the UK broadcast date though, because no. I don't think we got mm. it till 70 or 71. So... I don't know, we've all got the, we've all got the sort of start of when they started showing Star Trek etched in our minds because it was after the war games wasn't it but um yeah i don't know whether they then kept up kept up a like a regular pace after that mm. or what but what we haven't done is where we all first saw this so that would be an interesting question yeah yeah go on ali where, where, where did you come across the demons <laughs> it was actually one of the very first episodes I remember watching when I was a kid and my granddad had recorded it off of UK Gold and I remember it being in black and white as mm. well so mm. it was it was funny sort of uh, I didn't watch it in colour until the DVD came out so I just remember it always in black and white which I think gives it more atmospheric look to it anyway mm. but yeah that was that was like my original place that I saw it so good old VHS tape you know kind of thing mm-hmm. I was trying to work out when I first saw it. When was it on UK Gold? Because the the nineteen ninety three repeats probably that was when they colorized it, was it? Yeah, that was when they colorized it. But where uh, the because the VHS release was colorized as well. It had the little uh, yeah yeah the little icon, the little paintbrush icon. I remember the Tomorrow's World uh, episode where they talked about the colorization process. I've actually still got that on a, on a, mm. my VHS tape from the time. So I guess that was 92, 93. Yeah. Or ahead of that 93 repeat. So was the was the UK broadcast before VHS release? The BBC2 repeat? Yes, I think that came out before the VHS. Did it? I think it would have been, yeah. I'm trying to think. I have a feeling I probably first saw this at a... I don't know, it might have been one of the, um, one of the hooky, hooky VHS copies my pal Tim got hold of in the mid mid eighties from oh, right. his con his contact who was high up in you know fairly high up in the Duas at the time. So yeah, the old the old bootleg circuit as it was back in the day. I think I'm pretty sure it was then. It would have been high on the list of things I wanted to see. So because I'd re- read the yeah, certainly would have read the novelization. Yeah. I, I think I first saw an episode of it in the 80s at a convention somewhere, you know, in, in the, the video room. Mm. But which which one 
which episode in which convention is lost in the mists of time. I don't think I actually saw oh, the whole, whole vi- thing. Video rooms. Those were the yes. days. <laughs> I don't think I saw the whole thing until that 1993 colourised version, mm. though. But it might have been a black and white episode that I saw in the 80s. Can't really remember mm. now. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I, I first came across it as the target book in about 1975. Yes, I will have read the book first, thinking about it. Because there are a couple of bits that I... When they come up on the TV show, they evoke the memory of the book, weirdly. Hmm. Which was written by Barry Letts, I think. Yes, it was, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. So the colourised version was apparently November, December 92. Okay. They broadcast it on BBC Two in the evenings. Yeah, so I think that was the first first airing of that. So, Ellie, what were your impressions of the demons when you first saw it? It terrified me. Absolutely terrified me. <laughs> Azal and all of that. I mean, when I watched it, I was probably four years old at the time. Ooh, okay. So it was quite early on. An and all, all I remember is just joe the doctor and azal in the crypt and the master being there that was like just a scene that just stuck in my memory um mm. and bock obviously just running around yeah but I, th- I found him more funny even when i was younger i found him like funny just sort of in his tights and everything <laughs> but yeah and for some reason the morris dancers scared me i don't know what just because like when they when they got pertwee and they're just circling him and everything and he's just trying Mm. to get past i was like oh no i don't like that because it just kind of makes you feel a bit claustrophobic yeah Yeah, and then obviously they're nasty morris dancers anyway so you're not supposed to like them so Mm. yeah i think that's one of the most effective bits of it it's very wicker man obviously that's the thing and it goes goes down all these different routes they have a lot of fun with all these hammer horror tropes and things don't they yeah. That, I think that's one of the most effective bits of it. Yeah. I remember that when I was a boy, it seemed like Damaris Heyman appeared in almost every kiddies drama thing that, <laughs> that, 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 that was going. <laughs> but I was surprised. You know how it is when you're when you're a kid and everyone looks ancient? Watching mm. it this time through, I mean, she, I mean, she yeah. wouldn't say that she looks young, but she doesn't look as old as I remember her looking. Yeah, no, this no, is it, because... No. As a kid, I always thought she was like the old woman in mm. the village kind of yeah. thing. And you look at her now and you're like, no, I mean, you know, how with Damaris, like how old she was now. Yeah, she's quite young, but I love that sort of like older presence she's got. Y- young in the face, yes. but old at mm. heart kind of thing. Yeah. She's 12 years older than John Levine in, in The Demons. Yeah, they still play the, um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, young man. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to say this, but I always used to get her and... I think because of... It's, it's Olive Hawthorne, isn't it? Yeah. I always used yeah. to get her and whoever played Olive in on the buses mixed up <laughs> in my head. <laughs> Which I think is rather unfair under Morris Heyman, to be honest. <laughs> well, the Wicker Man was after this, wasn't it? I think so. Oh, yeah, good Lord, so. was it? Now there's a question. Well, I mean, I've just thrown that into the mix. Having, well, having spent the last five minutes discovering that Who Mourns yeah. for Adonais was broadcast 27th of April 1970 in the UK. There you go. Okay. Ah, there you go. So I think I strongly suspect that that's not a coincidence. Uh, the, but having answered the DVD that question, commentary notes are pretty pretty definitive that they think it was a they think right. it was a rip off. But I suppose maybe they're just putting together the same. Good lord, yes. 1973. Yeah, yep. 1973. Mm. Okay, now, now that's making me wonder whether Robin Hardy 
watch the demons and thought I'd have mm. some of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would have always had that pegged as being late sixties, but mm. when was the? I know it's not a direct link. Well, actually, no. I was going to say the Stone Tape, but then I was thinking of Children of the Stones. I mean, none of those are directly linking into this, but they all have a similar kind of vibe. There was something mm. in the air, but they were a bit yeah. later, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, I would they say so. A decade later? I don't, yeah. I don't know about a decade. No, not a decade. Five years it was later. Probably maybe. when I was a mm. kid. Well, The Devil Rides Out was before, was beforehand. Yeah, was 60, I think that's that was 68, and that's strong quite, influence. That's quite folk horror, even, the, even if it is period folk horror. I guess that's kind of ground, ground zero for that. And the other thing that comes into it, of course, is the, the actual chronicle dig on yes. Silvery Hill. Yep. Which I think was also about sixty eight, which they're very definitely giving a nudge and a wink to all of those. I mean the only mm. I have to say the only chronicle stuff I've ever seen has been Henry Lincoln wandering around Render Chateau talking about buried Templar treasure and So Chronicle was a series that ran for about thirty years, didn't it, from the sixties and it was the mm. a sort of precursor to Time Team, but it had a bit of a broader format. Yes, yeah. And they they had a run of episodes in yeah, did you say the late sixties where they they sponsored a dig at Silbury mm. Hill, which I think's the the best Bronze Age monument in Europe, pretty much. Yeah. Mm. And I think they found pretty much nothing in there uh, in the TV <laughs> yeah. show, but followed their way in there. And but the, yes, it's definitely an influence on the demons, and it's actually mentioned in the script. There are script notations to suggest that they draw reference to the. The Silbury Hill TV stuff. Brilliant. I mean, it kicks off with the Doctor in a really bad mood, which sort of seems to persist most of the way through the story. I mean, it has softened by about episode five. But, it, I mean, we talk about Colin Baker and, and Peter Capaldi as being the, 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 the Doctors that kind of irritate people and, and, and are quite abrasive. But, I mean, I, I, I've forgotten, you know, quite how Pertwee's representation can be a bit i always find him really abrasive and he's so often so rude to the brigadier mm. and he's quite yeah. quite often rude to joe yeah i mean i i love it sort of when pertwee uh, the doctor goes into the pub and then you know all the villagers are there kind of thing and he's like in a real urgency like <laughs> yeah. really sort of demanding and stuff yeah and he's just like you know like what are you doing chap kind of thing like you know settle down and then uh, it's just it's just the line about the wig that just absolutely <laughs> me every time it's yeah. so yeah, perfect i love that because you know it's that contrast as you said sort of like with pertwee's demanding presence and then suddenly he's taken down a peg and he's oh. kind of like oh i don't know how to react to this it's just brilliant mm. yeah I wrote in my notes that Joe smooths the way in in the pub, because Katie Manning probably did in real life quite a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you heard the stories of like Pertwee, you know, getting cheesed off and he rides away on the motorbike and everything, mm. you can tell this shoot. I mean, what was it? They were on location for two weeks in the mm. freezing cold and wet and all that kind of stuff, and you can imagine there's going to be a limit to how much you're going to put up with and stuff. Yeah. So and and then and Joe kicks off talking about the age of Aquarius. I mean, I, I, I know I know that astrology is not very popular on this po- podcast, and I descended <laughs> into into uh, internet hell trying to get trying to get my head around what exactly I was say, that don't was. Don't ask me to explain what it is. No, no, no. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I'm just going to mute myself now. So <laughs> now, apparently, yeah. If if it is a thing, 
it started in the late 20th century and will go on for 2,000 years. So so quite mm. why anyone should get excited about it, I don't really know. It doesn't feel like it's like a moment in time or anything. Mm. But I suppose it was it was a thing that was that, that was um, again being talked about at the time. I don't want to lay into this story too much because I know it is very well loved. But in terms of storytelling, I find it frustrating. Its strength is definitely as a character piece. Yeah. Because mm. yeah. in terms of narrative it's deeply confusing and there were moments watching it today where I thought I had a handle on it and then it all kind of slipped out of my grasp again broadly speaking I get the Azal stuff most of it but so the, the, the point of the story is that there's no such thing as magic yeah and that everything can be explained by science even if it is an alien science but my frustration is that there is quite clearly magic being demonstrated throughout the story that has no in-universe explanation. It's full of cool imagery and fun concepts, and it's an ideas story, but most of those ideas don't pay off anywhere. The episode, episode one opens with the mysterious storm, and you've got yes. the weird creature scuttling across mm. the ground, never explained. You've got the bit with the, the sign spins round yeah. that confounds the Doctor, never yeah. explained. Yeah. You've got the policeman being possessed that tries to yeah. smash Miss Hawthorne on the head, might be the master because she's a thorn in his side no pun intended but my my issue is that she then uses magic to quell the magical happenings and then he puts the rock down so mm. she either has accidentally through studying the occult gained some knowledge of azal's scientific technology by mm. accidentally repeating words connected to his tech i don't know it's just th there's a disparity between what it's trying to say and what it actually shows us i mean what what is bok i assume he's a he is a statue that's been animated did the master do that did azal do that see i always assumed it was azal like he had some special yeah i don't know yeah but he that... seems to be there yeah. and doing stuff at the master's command yeah guarding the crypt there's lots of examples of stuff that things are thrown up like the doctor makes fun of joe for not correlating the shape of the miniature spaceship on the ground to the mm. shape of the small tomb they're in and he says ah but look we're in a thing that's the same shape as the thing and and he teases her for for not picking up on that but there's no follow up on that we don't have an explanation as to why that small room they're in is in any way connected to the shape of the spaceship because presumably the spaceship at its full size is bigger than 10 feet across so what what is the suggestion and who cares it's just one of those moments and it's full of these moments like when Bok attacks and the the doctor uses quote-unquote magic to stop Bok hmm. and and Joe says but there's no such thing as magic and the doctor says, ah, but he thinks there is. Hmm. As if that's an explanation <laughs> as to what's just happened. And it's frustrating because it, it, there's a lot of kind of patronising stuff that makes you feel like, well, he's making fun of me for not being able to follow this. But then also there's actually no narrative explanation to an awful lot of the goings on in the story. So I find it somewhat unsatisfying as a narrative, but... The rest of it, I guess, makes up for it. 
because it's good character stuff and there's some nice set pieces and there's some good imagery but I would like it to all make a bit more sense please <laughs> Ellie you're going to say something Oh no! I mean, like I was just saying, like you know, sort of about the spells or whatever to stop Azal and everything. Mm. I mean, you know, if you want to take a, a different approach with like Logopolis, and you could say it's like a block transfer computation kind of verbal mm. thing mm-hmm. that you say to the the beast, and it, he's like, "Oh no, this is the right words that will defeat mm. me," kind of thing, because it's all to do with like the mathematics of the universe. Mm. I mean, that that's like a take you could put on it if you wanted some kind mm. of hooey element to it kind of thing but yeah i totally get it it's it's definitely the day the daemons is definitely a more character driven plot and i think that's why it's so adored by a lot of people because you've got so many strong characters in it mm-hmm. that even if the plot was you know weak as anything it's just they carry it and that's just what makes it interesting yeah i mean there's a lot of great doctor who that doesn't yeah. stand up to any scrutiny we talked at length <laughs> about how pyramids of mars is just garbage from start to finish but it's, it's brilliant i love it it's wonderful i won't have a, wor- a bad word said about it but it makes yeah. zero sense you you cannot you cannot scrutinize a lot of this well i, I like time flight so you know like <laughs> this that's okay. very problematic in itself so yeah in fairness there is a line i, I only know that because i was watching episode five uh, this afternoon before he came on there there is a line about the the, doc- the doctor says the emotions of ordinary a group of ordinary human beings generate a tremendous charge of psychokinetic energy that the master channels for his mm. own purpose. And Miss Hawthorne then says, but that is magic. That's precisely what black magic is. So that kind of puts a bit of a... Yeah. Bit, a bit of a, you know, if you, if you want to then take that so, yeah, so and run with it. Yeah, the, the, yeah the, the randomness could be almost like a psychic storm has been whipped mm. up and... There's odd goings on. I suppose you can you can ascribe odd goings on to the fact that it's driven by the minds of people, and therefore there is mm. kind of you know thoughts and randomness and manifestations. Uh, yeah, because I mean, own. for for me, I always thought that when the policeman gets possessed, kind of thing, it was the master, but using Azal to almost like project his psychic thoughts into like this kind of time storm thing or psychic yeah. storm that, you know, possesses people. And that's how he's got control of this village. But, you know, Miss Hawthorne's strong enough will that she's like, nah, screw you, mate. Like, I can mm. I can sort this out. Mm. That works. That works for me. I've seen people comment and say, well, hang on, how come the how come Azal is apparently making his influence felt before the master raises him or wakes him up? But then in episode five, doesn't, doesn't Azal say, aha, I was waking up anyway. And he does. Effectively. He, says I, he says I was on my way. <laughs> yes. So, uh, and so then you, you kind just of can... happened to phone at the same time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You've reminded me, actually. I did have another minor. New psychic link. Who dis? <laughs> Quibble. <laughs> Very good. The Doctor springs into action at the start of the story like he knows what's going on. Mm, he does, yes. mm. and there's no kind of backstory to that. He he rushes off to the dig as if he knows the world's going to end if that mound's opened mm. up. But mm. do we assume that he's aware of the demons being on Earth hundred thousand years ago? Well, he seems to be aware of the demons. Yes, that's true. Mm. Yeah, because he he knows who they are because he's you know that line where he's like the demons from the planet Deimos kind of thing. Yeah, so. and then Joe chips in, presumably as she's been fully briefed in a scene that we're not privy to, because she knows how many light years away 
Deimos is. Oh. <laughs> she just no, goes, yes, Deimos is 60,000 light years away. Yeah. I guess that was a whole off-screen explanation. Okay. Must have been. Yeah, I mean, the, the Doctor has been to 100,000 BC. In, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Okay. So, so, so maybe, I mean, you know, obviously it was off-screen. We didn't see it during mm. um, an unearthly chart or whatever we're calling that. But, you know, uh, maybe maybe he went back to 100,000 BC just to see how they were getting on and tripped over um, Azal at that point. <laughs> and his wrinkled stockings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bless there him. are a few moments where it, it slides into one of those into... suspension of disbelief moments, isn't it? Yeah, the CSO Azal is a low point, yeah. and the yeah. uh, the polystyrene boulder with the polystyrene snow coming in. Yeah, but I mean, they're few and far between these moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I mean, they do make good choices. Sorry, chief shot. They, they make some quite good choices. So, I mean, so they don't use CSO Azal in episode two. Mm. Yeah, everyone's sort mm. of looking up in the air, but it's just all assumed. And actually, even the in episode three or four, is it where they're, they're shooting from behind? You know, mm. and it's uh, again, you don't get to see the full horror until episode uh, right at the end of episode four. So, mm. so I think that those are all wise choices. Speaking yeah. of Azal's scale, uh, something I noticed today that I'd always thought was a, a continuity issue or a production error before. The hoof prints seen from the helicopter oh, are that, enormous. That always mm. annoys me that bit, yeah. And then when they go on the ground, they're much smaller. But apparently, that's intentional. The idea was that Azal was shrinking as he walked mm. and gets smaller and smaller and smaller as he finally gets uh, to the crypt, which is how he's big enough to get through the door of the crypt. Right. Because apparently, right. there was a production shot intended that would have shown the footprints from the air decreasing in size. But oh. you don't get that. You just get big right. ones from the air and then smaller ones on the ground. So it just looks like an awful error, but apparently not. Yeah. And in fact, even the heat shield thing in the Brigadier with his swagger stick or whatever it is, 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 is <laughs> isn't a bad bit of, um, you know, considering the budget great of effect. Doctor Who, it seems to work pretty mm. well. Yeah. 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 And chucking the, uh, chucking the rocks and the sticks and them exploding, it's yeah. all very neatly That's- done. Yeah, it's a really cool visual effect. I thought yeah. it was really effective. Even now, I still don't know how they did it. It's like really mm. cool. I can tell you, it's very boring. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gav, you can be the boring one. They had a spring-loaded charge inside the prop with a nylon thread attached to a little piece that kept two electric contacts apart. Mm. So when they threw the prop that contained the explosive the nylon string attached to the prop pulled tight, basically pulled the pin out as if it was a grenade, yeah. which allowed the uh, detonator inside to make mm. contact and it set the explosive off in the prop midair. Which is why if you watch Nick Courtney picking that stick up incredibly <laughs> gingerly, because he knows it could well go off in his hand. <laughs> okay. But I always thought that was just careful camera placement and he threw the stick Mm. off screen at Mm. the moment it was detonated. Somebody just throws a smoke bomb kind of Uh, thing. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Apparently it's all practically done. (laughs) Clever stuff. Ingenious. Mm. Very, very groovy civvies that Benton and Yates are wearing. Finally out of uniform. Oh, very much so. Oh, no. It's it's weird seeing them in civilian clothes. I I still, I go, oh, no, I don't know if I like this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was Barry Letts wanting to show sort of the private lives of the unit team yeah. which is why we get the brigadier in bed and there was a yeah. there was a potential to have his wife in shot she was going to be fiona lethbridge stewart handing him the phone 
but that was vetoed. We worked hard. I, I was part of the team, or I headed the team, that did some of the cleanup for the Blu-ray. Yeah. And ah. the, the Benton's trousers were the most problematic yeah. thing of the entire... Because <laughs> that, particularly when they, when they land on the lawn, they get out of the helicopter, and the red of his trousers bled into the green of the grass oh, for about no. two feet to the right. Wow. So we had Kieran Hyman, Rich Tipple, and Anthony Lamb, and I forget which of them worked on Benton's trousers. Poor chap. But, uh, but yeah, the civvies, the colour of those civvies. It's an unforgiving task. Caused a lot of trouble. Yeah. But yeah, it I'll, looks which brings me to, to Benton and Yates apparently watching a live rugby match yeah. at, at Almost midnight, midnight. At midnight. Mm. Where's that happening? Unless it's recorded, in which case one of them has been quite savvy in getting the other one to bet on the outcome. Yeah. <laughs> well, they didn't have That's the internet true. in those days, mind you. They did have no, newspapers. they did have though. newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the, wasn't the Bronze Age. Yeah, that's true. More yeah. to the point is they had a video recorder, why weren't they recording Space Pirates a few months earlier? Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'd never noticed before that the BBC Three person who says... That they've lost the signal because mm-hmm. uh, that's Nick Courtney's voice. It's Nick, isn't it? Before. Oh, yeah. Is it? Voice. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. We had something recently where Pert we did a voiceover. The, is it somewhere in Ambassadors? There's a couple. There's oh, one that's cut. Yeah. Is it the Sea Devils? Is cut? Uh, I wouldn't have watched the Sea Devils recently. I know it's something I have watched recently. So he, he does it in Inferno, doesn't he? But I, I don't yes, know. that's it. Mm. Inferno's the one it's cut because he does like a a Lord Haw yeah. doesn't he? Oh yeah, remember? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think there's a couple of others. But. Yes, I'm sure there are. Yeah. Benton is still interested in breakfast, isn't he? So, so uh, you know, Day of the Daleks isn't the first time that Benton's been uh, hungry on duty. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's all, it's all well, part of One trap mind. Yeah. <laughs> Go on, John. I was, I was only going to say about with regard to BBC Three, is old um, mm. uh, Fergus is very um, Michael Palin, isn't he? But I guess they were just drawing on the same kind of wicker... Alan Wicker kind of walking and talking, kind of presenting style of the time. Yeah. Was it Magnus Magnusson doing Chronicle at that point? It was, yes, well? yeah. Hmm. Not that there's any great influence. Oh, there. there's a connection coming up. Yeah. Is there? Well, because we've got um, Jamie Iceland. Magnusson, is, uh, oh. is the director of our second story, is his grandson. No. Yep. No way. Yep. That's amazing. I didn't know that. Sally Magnuson's son, yeah. Sally Magnuson's wow. son, son, son. Yes. Um, <laughs> I should have Very asked good. David Simeon if he based it off of that his like presenting yeah. style. Mm. Mm. Good fact. Yeah. Matthew Corbett's in the Demons as well. That was uh, that's my other fact to slip in at the end. <laughs> mm. So Jamie Magnus Stone, but nevertheless, he is apparently Magnus Magnuson's grandson. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think the um, seems to me a very credible BBC presenter type thing. I mean, I I, I, I believe in him completely. Yeah. The, mm. the um, yeah, uh, the presenter at the start is the uh, the uh, professor bloke. Is he killed? Yeah, I, I meant to look yeah. out for it. He appears to, to get be. tonight because yeah. I, yeah. I believe there were scenes cut or in the draft script or somewhere that the the pub was supposed to be littered with corpses mm. and the oh. doctor was was going to be one of them right but joe kept saying no i don't think this one's dead <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that it was, yeah, that i wonder whether that made it to the 
novel. Yeah. Because it was only the two of them that got frozen, yes. wasn't it, in mm. the end? I think the cameraman's one of the people that was supposed to have been killed right, 12, and would have been uh, in the pub. Okay, right. Because mm. he's wobbling all over the place. Mm. And then the others just hightail it out of there, don't they? At the start of episode yeah. two. So like, we're off. Yeah. And uh, we'll leave you... We'll leave the to go with the heat barrier. <laughs> Quick, that's our contracts up for these two episodes. And, um, or however long we've... Well, I guess it was on location, so I guess it wasn't episode-based. But... Um, Ah, yeah. In terms of the characters thing, I think the one thing that struck me that kind of disappointed me a bit going through it was that it felt like there was more potential for them to to do something clever with the the master's corruption of the villagers. Yeah. It starts looking like oh this is gonna be very clever, he's going to He's going to turn them. He's kind of playing on their greed, and yeah. and yeah, these are all yeah little men with inadequacy complexes, and mm. yeah, he's going to play into that. And then the moment anyone sort of raises any questions, he just sort of deploys mm. Bok and scares the um yes. Jesus mm. out of them, and that kind of undermines the question of whether any of them are you know because the stuff with the with the squire, especially, you think oh they could have gone. Mm gone somewhere else with that and then the, the sort of the cult yeah. members like um yeah Matthew Corbett turns up in episode five without Sooty. Does he? Yes. Matthew Corbett Good is Lord. the one that Matthew Corbett is the one that leans over to Roger Delgado when he's about to sacrifice Joan. So does the whole don't you think this is going a bit too far? I did I did wonder if you were paying attention when I pointed that out five minutes ago, so Oh sorry, did you? <laughs> oh god. Ah. <laughs> Don't worry. Richard will edit it seamlessly. Yeah. (laughs) How did that flip slip past me? I must have been looking up something else on here. Dear oh dear. The perils of live research. It would have been cool if yeah, like what you were saying is sort of like I don't know, a Zal feeds off the demons of the people in the village or mm. something, mm. and that's what the master is trying to get because he's yeah. like, oh, you, you've been fiddling at the post office and whatever. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, that that would have been really cool. But yeah, it, it kind of boils down to the, the typical kind of Doctor Who, ooh, spooky monster moment. Yeah. yeah. The, the, there was a bit by the Maypole that struck me particularly that I thought this has reached a really interesting point mm. where he mm. talks about how they kind of the master's almost promising them a little village utopia mm. and they, yeah. they'd be in their isolated little pocket of, of uh, weirdness. Mm. But yes, then it crumbles very rapidly. But at that moment, I thought there's potentially a more interesting mm. thread in here mm. because it does kind of, the plot runs out of steam in sort of the middle of episode three and only kind of picks up again the end of, ep- well, halfway through episode five. I did find myself flagging a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, there, there's interesting stuff in there that I don't think was fully explored. You could have offered to John Scott Martin the opportunity not to have to sit in the Dalek ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does some good mumble acting, doesn't he? <laughs> Actually, I think, that I think the best of that is, uh, is Bert, the landlord, who the amount of nodding he does when he's in the scene with the, with the master towards... Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah. it's extraordinary. He's he, he definitely uh, bigging up his part there. Do you know Matthew Corbett's in episode five as well? <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, dear. I completely... Sorry, I completely... <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
The other thing that makes me, me laugh is Richard Franklin trying to wrestle with the guy who's running off with the, with the, with the helicopter. He, he's, he, he's definitely an unequal struggle, isn't it? <laughs> he, 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 he's, he's never going to be units muscle. No. Bless him with his little punches and everything. <laughs> yeah. I was going to go on to uh, not not much muscle with Benton and the cloak uh, scene. <laughs> ah, yes. Oh, it made me laugh today. Yeah. It's the the rate at which he drops. Yes. Like, like the, a like lead the... weight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a lead weight laced with chloroform and he just goes boom when he when the cloak touches him yeah. it's wonderful well i think we talked about uh, on invasion of the dinosaurs that, that um john levine is a um he's very good at dropping like a stone and the bit where um <laughs> the bit in that where pertwee knocks him out and he apparently oh, yeah. just goes yeah he says go on then doctor knock me out and Pertwee does not make any effort to stop him from basically <laughs> bashing his face on the floor yeah. he just goes over <laughs> like a um, <laughs> Apparently, he just yeah. goes down like a felled tree. And, uh, <laughs> bastard! <laughs> he yeah. keeps clubbing him while he's still on the ground. John, he accidentally calls him John. There's also this thing about the demon appearing three times, which seems a little mm. bit extraneous. I mean, the first mm. time, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, he's got to appear once, I suppose, and then. He has to have a bit of a uh, chew over how it's going on before he comes the, the the last time. But what's the middle one for, other than to yeah. fill in a bit in the middle yeah. episode? Well, this is it. it. It it goes back to this slight bugbear I have that there's sort of occult trappings that aren't readily explained, and that thing that uh, of saying prescribing that Azal will appear three times. It would have been nice if there was a logical reason for that. That like his ship has three power cycles or something and yeah yeah uh, you know just some arbitrary thing that says and that's why it's entered into occult imagery that yeah, the yeah. devil will present three times because of you know whatever his phone needs recharging the first one's example. to gather data the second one's to do something else and the third one is to yeah clear his browser history yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's nice that you get at the end of episode three just as azal's coming back it's the it's the master who's in danger and we sort of end mm. up with it on cliffhanger with mm. so i mean i guess you know it's the fifth story on the trot with the master in it and he, so even if we 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 love to hate him we still get a little get a little bit worried that he might be uh disappearing off maybe but it's also it's also a nice change to have a plot dynamic be the cliffhanger rather yes. than yeah. mm. yes. I mean yes it is jeopardy but yeah. the cliffhanger is in as much the implications of what's going on Yeah. so yeah you're left wondering what's going on <laughs> <laughs> I'll just repeat myself I have to repeat myself three times before it makes sense <laughs> do you know Matthew Corbett's in this? <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Corbett must appear three times before the podcast <laughs> yeah. is over. So, so, so episode four <laughs> busy, busy, is, let's get busy. <laughs> is, is the only one that's in decent shape. I mean, did, did you use that as a, as a source mm. for the for the colour stuff at all, or, or is it? Um, not really. No, there was some useful colour reference, but by and large, 
it was tidying up fringing right. around objects. So if you if you look further from the object, you you can see the true color that it was meant to be. We worked on about seven minutes throughout four episodes, okay. uh, picking some of the most offensive bits. So the, there's there's plenty where nothing's been touched, but it's not too bad. Mm. But there were some scenes that were really standout examples of of stuff that was distracting. The guys did the five rounds rapid scene, which actually wasn't on the shot list that was requested, but we thought it would be nice to make sure that the the most famous scene looked as nice as it possibly could. Yeah. Would you say the Benton trousers thing was the worst that you had to fix, or was there another that was worse than that? Benton's trousers were about the worst, but there were quite a lot of very purple skies and purple with yellow stripes at times. Mm. The the scene where the doctor's talking to Osgood, there's there's quite a long bit that got colour corrected to to restore the sky to a more natural blue colour. Right. The, the shot at the beginning where Miss Hawthorne's talking to the medical doctor, mm. and there was some nasty bleeding into the colour of the car, so that got fixed as well. So that was quite a good early example. But yeah, there's there's a scene where uh, is it the brigadier on the radio in the foreground and someone comes towards him to give a report or vice versa I can't remember but there were lots of objects in that scene that were interfering with each other so uh, there was a lot of work done on that no I think it was well worth it I think it looks fantastic on blu-ray yeah definitely and with the upscale yeah yeah all all of the all of the restoration techniques combined Mm. it scrubs up very nicely completely random observation that apparently Miss Hawthorne's cloak is Margaret Rutherford's Miss Marple cloak. I don't know. Apparently, they're they were friends in real yes, life. Yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah, apparently, yeah. Dem- apparently, Margaret Rutherford lent Damaris Heyman her cloak. Brilliant. From, uh, for <laughs> <laughs> which is rather good. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier that that it was a lot of filming in freezing cold weather, and that that Morris dancing in particular, and the maypole mm. looks absolutely blooming freezing cold. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen anything yeah. that looked less like May in my life. Fake Although it I suppose you make it, it I mean, was I mean, May, though I believe. Was it okay? Well, it was just, it was just flipping cold May. I suppose it was May is quite. I, th- I think, or am I imagining that? That seems very early ahead of them to for them to have been filming it. Maybe I'm thinking of transmission it? dates. I remember Christopher Barry saying at one point it snowed, didn't it? Like when they woke up in the hotel or something like that, they opened up the curtains and could see snow, sort of thing, and they were like, "What the hell do we do?" Mm. Yeah. Now cast a clout till May's out. <laughs> <laughs> when did they? Yes, indeed. Well, it was for 19th of April. Right, okay. 1971, right. they were filming it. So, yeah. Yeah. Just and they broadcast, they broadcast in late May. Blimey. Yeah, I think the turnaround was insane because like, they, yeah. they had to eat into the um, post-production time because of the filming on location. Mm. I think yeah. Christopher Barry was kind of like filming almost live because mm. they just needed to cut the shots into place as quickly as possible just to get it out. Wow. Well, as I understand it, they tried some very innovative and, poss- and possibly not entirely successful filming technique for this where they actually had three mm. film cameras on yeah. location. They were filming it as as you would like oh, a studio yeah, yeah. set up. They, they got some new new tech for syncing up the sound, I believe, or... Or that was in the, involved in sinking cameras and so as an experiment because they were nearing the end of things, end of the series, obviously. Mm. 
they used this thing so they were able to hook everything up and so they were able to record three separate camera angles on the same shots at mm. one time. Mm. But apparently they decided it was not worth the yeah, it wasn't worth the effort in terms of having to have three three cameramen and assistants plus the extra footage yeah. being being shot, you know, just the just the sheer cost of film. Apparently didn't didn't work out as being they weren't able to bank as much, but mm. yeah, that at least explains why, you know, they were able to get a lot of stuff on film for this. Yeah. It always looks beautiful on film. I think Doctor Who on film mm. is just mm. gorgeous. Mm. Yeah, I guess particularly the 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 bit at the right at the end. I mean, it, it actually look does start to look like it might have been a warmer day. That you know, the, the, the final scenes, mm. and then the panning back out that, that that does look particularly nice. Well, I think there was some stuff where the sun suddenly came out blazing hot. I think it might be the tail end of the stuff with the Morris men. Um, before yeah, you get the, the Morris dancing yeah. scenes shot, and apparently they they suddenly had a whole load of very strong shadows and had to get an arc light to um to flood fill because they you know they suddenly found they had a load of shadows where they which didn't make sense in terms of what else they'd shot so they had to get an arc lights to try and balance things out complete nightmare and that's without um katie manning wearing the wrong outfit for the morris dancing scene <laughs> was she that's why Pertwee sends her off in the penultimate scene to say go off and get out of your sacrificial robes back into your civvies because he's not normally all that concerned, is he? With uh... so she goes, tr- she goes trotting off back into the pub, yeah. yes. uh, without carrying her clothes. She's ca- apparently she's carrying the clothes as she gets out of the church before right. the church blows uh, up. She's not. Okay. She's then not carrying the clothes in that scene, which was like a late pickup because they realised they had shot the the maypole scene with her back in civvies, so they had to oh. they had to write in a an excuse, a sequence for her to get back into civvies. And talking of civvies, I was just going to say one thing about, in general, I think that's one of the reasons why early 70s Doctor Who stands up possibly better. You you kind of think, okay, you know, what we were talking about when you do see them in civvies, I think given it was like the worst, the worst time for them to decide to strand the Doctor on Earth. And they were lucky they did it in a military context in that regard. So it's not quite as bad in terms of the fashions as it would be if it was full Jason King all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny that everyone keeps... They're in the pub and everyone keeps saying, oh, we should go out and look for somebody. And they say, no, 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 no. We've got to stay in the pub. It's, uh, it's almost <laughs> as if they've got there's a restriction on those actors being out on film or something because they, mm. they're absolutely mm. desperate to stay in the pub for quite long periods. <laughs> well, it's the 70s. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's a fairly unforgiving thing for Courtney, uh, for Nick Courtney actually, in terms of he gets stuck in his own, I and mean, we're lucky he's he's in fine fettle. Yeah. Because I was just thinking, well, he does basically get to his entire story is to be standing out somewhere in the countryside until until like the last ten minutes. Yeah. He's basically standing outside in the countryside, shouting at Osgood, and occasionally having other people come up and <laughs> yeah. meet him and talk to him from about thirty feet away. Yeah. And, and then when he does turn up, the doctor goes, oh, you know, "What's the point of you? You haven't got the things." <laughs> <laughs> Has the um, link been established between that Osgood and new series Osgood? I assume it has, but I've never checked. Not 
as far as I'm aware, I think people have just kind of through the ether gone, oh yeah, they must be related kind mm. of thing. Yeah. But it's never been confirmed on the screen, I don't mm. think. But I mean, I just kind of went, oh, I, I, I get it, Moffat, what you're doing mm. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, whether or not they'll establish that sort of later on, who knows. Mm. And, and are the pair of them then related to that other Osgood that's in the Seeds of Death? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we should draw up a family tree. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I saw something in the production notes that apparently Alec Linstead really didn't get on with Pertwee. Oh, right. Mm, Linstead, so. who, play, who, played, who played Osgood. Osgood but I, yeah. um, sadly, the production notes that were then completely unforthcoming in juicy gossip about, you know, about what <laughs> and why. So I was, I, was le- I, think... I was left hanging. So if anyone. Yeah, wasn't it something to do with, like, he couldn't get the lines out, the guy who plays Osgood or something, mm-hmm. and Pertwee got annoyed? I think that was, like, one of the reasons why he went away on the bike. Ah. Oh, I think it might have been a continuity thing, because when Pertwee draws the circuit board mm-hmm. on the glass, I think, like, something had gone wrong, and they were like, oh, no, we need to clean it, it's all wrong, and, yeah, I think there was a bunch of stuff, basically, mm-hmm. that just happened, yeah. Ah, right. Yeah, well, wouldn't be the first time he'd been in a grump, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite funny also that they go from country lane to, with the helicopter chase, suddenly they're in an airfield. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll let that one pass, I guess. Mm. It's nice to see it to have a helicopter. Yeah, yes, the helicopter yeah. stunts are awesome. Like, mm. I think like sixties Doctor Who as well. Like, they mm. really went all out with their helicopter stunts. Mm. Well, Barry, of course, directed. Yeah, oh, Barry yes. directed End yeah. of the World. Yes. So he was mm. fond of fond of a chopper. For now, for now. The happily married man. Uh, lovely bloke, actually, and his wife was very nice as well. I met them a few times. So, mm. back in the day, back in my convention running days, oh. I was interested to hear about their writing process, which mm. was that Barry Letts threw together a first draft, mm. gave that to Robert Sloman. He then did an interim draft and handed that back to Barry Letts, who then rewrote it again mm. into the version that was then handed to Terence Dix and Terence Dix then polished it into the into the final iteration because I often I'm always fascinated by how different writing teams collaborate mm. and it's a shame Shane Paul's not here tonight to talk about that because I like picking his brain on his writing process mm. with his writing partner because some some writers writing teams writing duos I've seen I've heard them talk about how one will sit at the typewriter yeah. mm. and the other will stride around the room and they will essentially improvise the dialogue and when they're when they're happy the scene feels right they'll they'll commit it to the page or one will essentially dictate and the other will filter it as they type it it, it interests me that that they were writing whole iterations of the script and passing that backwards and forwards rather than mm. sitting down and collaborating on a scene by scene basis yeah yeah so I mean, bob baker was talking about writing style and that, that was, he was definitely of the they sit together in the same room and one of them's at a typewriter mm. but whereas this sounds seems sounds more like the um, elton john bernie Taupin method of you know they'll have a crack at it but not in the same place mm. Mm. Oh, interesting and the whole thing came from 
an audition piece for Joe Grant originally, didn't mm. it? Yeah. It yeah. Was, uh... And and Richard Franklin, wasn't it? The two of them. Oh, I suppose it was, would have been at the same time, for the, actually. For the pair yeah. of them, which is why it ends up the pair of them in mm. the crypt, essentially rehashing that audition yeah. scene. I hadn't thought, she... of course, they'd have been recu- recruiting, casting him at the same time, wouldn't they? Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, that would figure. Going back to Osgood, I, I love that there's a lever that's marked boost. <laughs> <laughs> Dispenses chocolate bars. <laughs> mm, yeah. And I also noted that, that it's not just the Chibnall era where there's a lot of exposition. The first part of episode five, there was an astonishing amount of exposition for about sort of four or five minutes. But yeah, I mean, it, fair enough. It, it wasn't too grating, but I just thought, yeah, they, they've, they've sort of explained the plot an awful lot there. It's funny, isn't it? it? It does happen a lot in Doctor Who and in all kinds of things. And often people will overlook it depending on how broadly they feel positively or negatively about the story. But if they don't especially like the story, it'll be used as a another reason to attack it. Hmm. But yeah. to, to actually essentially have a slideshow where they sit all of the cast down and yeah. explain the plot with slides... Yeah. Is is not the most elegant way of doing things, but you know it's fine. Mm. Well, it's of the era, definitely. Mm. Your church hall slideshow, mm. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, because I, I I wasn't particularly aware of, of who mourns for Adonais, but I, I did write. It's a Star Trek ending. You know, this does not compute. <laughs> I mean, it, it, as 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 one of you said, that there's at least three or four that are a bit like that. Plus the, the the sort of standard Moffat ending of Love Conquers All, uh, mixed mm-hmm. together really. But if yeah. it's if it's completely lifted from that Star Trek episode, then I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll let Moffat off this time. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I mean, it comes back to that thing of how we interpret the quote unquote science, magical alien science. But um, the idea that Joe's compassion causes Azal to short circuit as if he's a yes. confused robot mm. I find a little bit jarring yeah it doesn't feel like we've been that's been set up terribly well that he's that logical no that he's gonna and, and the doctor because I, I, I sent a message to to someone today say jokingly saying it, it is a Zala cyborg mm. but then the doctor the doctor comes out and he says well you you, you could say he's blown a fuse <laughs> And I thought, well, you, you could say that if he was a robot, and yeah. he's not. So what kind of explanation is that? Yeah. It's confusing. Yeah. There, was a, there was a cut line slightly earlier in the dialogue about his programme, about him right. fulfilling oh. his programme. Now I can't... Yeah, now it's going gonna, it's gonna to bother me. It just it slipped past on the, um, on the uh, production subtitles, and mm. I didn't think anything of it at the time, but now you've mentioned that... I mean, if Azal was a cyborg, I mean, it would make a hell of a lot of sense kind of thing. Mm. But obviously that just did not translate onto the screen at (laughs) all. No, I don't think it's intentional. But Mm. I mean, I do have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about... I mean, I prefer Doctor Who to be science fiction and the closer it leans into fantasy, the the more frustrated I get. Because Mm. I I suppose because the, the show so frequently insists on doing this sort of there's no such thing as magic it's all science and it's yeah. all explicable but then it it never carries through in a way that makes sense and there's another 
example that frustrates me, and that's in the Shakespeare Code. And the, the dialogue that explains the goings-on says something like, your science on Earth is based on mathematics, and theirs is based on language. So what you think of as spells yeah. are scientific formulae, and you, you, you're meant to swallow this. But it, I, it, what deeply frustrates me is that there's still no technology on show in that story because because the, the if you got if that's your analogy then that's like saying well if you just shout a telephone number into the air that's how you speak to someone in yeah. another country yeah. you still need the telephone the numbers on their own don't do anything you can't just say oh maths versus language and that explains it the yeah. language has to plug into something it has to program something and Logopolis well. has a similar issue yeah I, I find that with um, a lot of like Chris Chibnall's writing is that like he'll do a lot of exposition and say oh this this thing happens when you do this and you're like cool show us it kind of thing because yeah. yeah. otherwise we're just kind of left there with a you know there's so much uh, suspension of disbelief kind of thing and yeah, to actually physically show, I mean, at least with Logopolis, I guess you physically see entropy happen when, you know, they all die and they're not talking numbers and stuff. But hmm. yeah, as you said, like there's no tech, there's no real technology. They're using, um, yeah, abacus, abacus, yeah. that's the word. Um, yeah, sort of thing. Like yeah. in the Shakespeare code, I always wanted that just to be, a you know, an alien circuit board under the cauldron or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rather than the fact that the cauldron just is a view screen because it's a story about witches. Yeah, you just take a and panel you just off have and to, it's got yeah. a slow circuit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'm mm. just thinking of time flight now as well when he's got his mystic ball and then you see the circuitry underneath sort of thing. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's a shorthand for saying there is more going on. Yeah, than, the BCI than kind there of thing. To. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Well, well, well done, time flight. Yeah. <laughs> it sounded like you were going to leap in, Giles, and defend. Hmm? I was possibly going to. Yeah, and that may this this may be this is my soft justification of so on that I think that uh, what's going on in the Shakespeare Code is setting up the Archangel Network from uh, Last of the Time Lords, fourteen sides of the um, globe, fifteen satellites, fifteen satellites in the Archangel Network that reflect the Doctor's name around the world. Long time since I've seen I, I'm that. Missing, I'm missing the link. I mean, I remember mm. the bits, but I don't see how that helped Just in the, Shakespeare times. Just the sort of magnified... Yeah, well, in Shakespeare times, I agree, you're right. But um, The satellite network then was again, considerably we've had... less sophisticated. Hmm. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I, kind of, I, I kind of go for it on... Yeah, I, I kind of let it have a pass on the grounds of the, the metaphor or whatever rather than... But then I like season... Mm. I'm the guy that likes season three. Oh, you're the one. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> Series three, even. <laughs> so, Ellie, Gav was saying that you were involved in some filming in in Oldbourne, was it? Yes, right. yes, for the Blu-ray box set, The Devil's Weekend. Ah. It, and, and, I mean, it still looked surprisingly similar, as I recall from watching that extra. Oh, it's like going in a time machine. I mean, you literally... It's like walking onto a set. Like, the the whole village just hasn't changed in the slightest. All the buildings are the same. I mean, even the people, you know, the villagers that were sort of tiny dots that you see on the um, 
old films and stuff like the behind the scenes they're now adults and <laughs> you know they uh, they got kids and everything they're sort of like a real sort of like close-knit community kind of thing but it's really lovely to go and visit because it you know everything's the same so you're like oh i remember that's the bit where he says five rounds rapid and then like 30 minutes up from the village is where devil's mounds are and stuff <laughs> like that so you can go and visit that it's, it's not a bad walk actually <laughs> and yeah it's just sort of like eerily calm up there as well because i remember when we were filming we were chasing the rain like the rain always kept going opposite to us which was just like really really fortunate but i just remember sort of like we were looking over and we could see the rain coming down and a rainbow just appeared and i just remember like me and katie and everybody just looking over each other like that's john over there that's john pertwee (laughs) looking at us at the moment and it was, it was just like a really, really lovely time, super busy, sort of just trying to get everything filmed and stuff. But there's so many good stories from like the villagers and that, they've still got pictures, they've still got autographs of them at the time. Like we, there was one person who had uh, Roger Delgado's uh, signature and stuff and he was showing me photos. So yeah, it was just a nice little community that I think are really appreciative of Doctor mm-hmm. Who. It just never has left them. And I mean, they even even got like Dalek bins and TARDIS bins <laughs> and stuff like that. And the Cloven Hoof sign still sort of outside the pub and, you know, you can go and have a meal and whatever. So yeah, it was wonderful, like really sort of good experience. And it's funny because this was the first time I'd ever been up there. And I only live sort of like half an hour, 40 minutes away. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was a good enough excuse to sort of like have Katie Manning take you in your arms, showing you around and stuff, <laughs> which was just so lovely. I mean, I, I just adore her so much. Mm. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was lovely. Bro. Was it a single day? Two days. Two days. Yeah, yeah. You so, um, there. No, I didn't, because I lived just sort of down the road. I I did. I was like, I was the runner, so I did all the supply runs. I got all the snacks and the drinks and all that kind of stuff ready for them. Because it was cold, it was absolutely freezing. And uh, I mean, climbing the the church tower, because of COVID and everything, we had to be sort of really careful on how many people did certain things. And we all had to keep Mm. our distance. So you probably see it in the documentary, like we're all spaced apart and stuff. But, you know, everything felt safe and... Yeah, and the the drone shots of like Oldbourne sort of round the the church and everything was just stunning. It's a shame that they never actually filmed in the church itself for the episode because it's like mm-hmm. stunning inside. But I think it was something to do with the um the vicar just didn't want them in there at the time. Right. But I think the vicar now, like lovely lady, was just like, yeah, if they ever came back and they you know come straight in mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, if if anybody gets a chance, I would like highly recommend it because it is just walking onto a Doctor Who set. Mm. Bro, is there anything else anyone wanted to say about the demons? Related to the church, I gather they did kind of tread on, tread on eggshells around the the sort of Christianity elements of the mm. scripts, didn't they? That they had to, they sort of they turned turned the the cavern underneath because it was a crypt, and then they kind of yeah, they turned it into well, an the, the, ancient the, cavern or something. To the scenes that ended up in, being a crypt were originally meant to be church scenes, mm. right? So it was supposed to be stuff set yeah. in the church. And they budgeted to build uh, a church set, and then they they said we 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 want to be careful. There was there were mutterings at the time in the press about whether Doctor Who was too inappropriate, too horrific. So they were 
just trying to be careful. So they toned down all of the religious references, but changed then, the church to a crypt. And... But then blew the church up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> the coup de grace. <laughs> Random fact, it's the only commissioned five-part Doctor Who story. Okay. Because ah. the other one were, gained uh, one and lost one. Yeah. Mm. So the mind robber was an accident. Uh, the dominators. Yeah. Was also an accident, yeah. <laughs> in a different way. <laughs> the whole thing, yeah. Yes, frankly. So, a science nerd thing. Uh, they they dress up all this. I'm not as hung up on my Doctor Who having to be sciencey as Gav is, but it slightly it does slightly wrinkle with me, you know, or rankle rather when they they shoot for something and then they miss it. They try and make something sound very sciencey and then. And you think, oh, that's clever, that's a really good idea, and then they botch it. And um, the whole thing with E equals MC squared and <laughs> that explaining the releases and ex- exchanges of heat and so on. And yet they've just set up in the second episode that the that the spaceship, despite having shrunk in size, weighs exactly as much <laughs> as it did. So oh, it's still yeah. got the sa- it's still got the same mass. Right. So yeah, there's no, you can't um, pick it up because it's 750 tons. Yes. Good point. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. slightly. I thought, hang on. Also, if they were losing that amount of mass, has anyone worked mm. out C C squared is a hell of a lot of e, isn't it? Hmm. True. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, probably probably where blow, is it? blow up the earth. Sorry, go on. Where is it coming from? Which bits of Azal is is he losing? <laughs> is it every other <laughs> every other atom, or? Does he have five legs mm. when he's full size? <laughs> it's it's the same thing as with the giant robot. It just everything gets bigger, everything gets smaller. Mm. But then you're not losing mass. Mm. Yeah, because you could shrink the gaps between the atoms, couldn't you? Well, and then and then, but then you would have no energy release. Mm. Yeah. Well, my final thought on this is: I want to see the story that's happening at Satan Hall. Oh yes, which Just is apparently on, on, on eight miles note. away on the incredible spinning signpost. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's Satan Hall. <laughs> it's like, how did they know it was Devil's End rather than Satan Hall? They had to go to. And, um, yeah. <laughs> Dear Russell T Davis. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, yeah. Do you want a couple of minutes before we d- dive into um, the other one? Yes. Sounds like a good idea. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, here's a clip from my other podcast. Hi Richard, how are you? Yeah, yeah, fine thanks Emily. How about you? I'm mostly okay, I've just got a lot on at the moment, and I've got to prepare a report, catch up on emails, look at my team's messages, review a piece of work for someone in the team, create a presentation on the next month's activities, focus on my BAU, anything ad hoc that's coming in, then I've also got some personal bits and pieces that I've got to fit into my week, I've got to take my son here, I've got to do that with him, I need to go and see my mum at some point, oh and I want to go and see my friends, oh I'm fine some time for myself. Emily, Emily, take a breath, you don't seem quite yourself, are you really okay?
welcome to our next episode of If It's Hurting, It's Not Working. And this time we're going to talk a little bit more about mental health. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, this time of the year, it's cold. It's dark a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. We've been stuck in our homes, some of us, over the last couple of months, more than we would have liked. So I guess, in, in a sense, we're feeling a bit lonely, perhaps, maybe a bit unfulfilled. So it's definitely a time for us to think about what that's doing to us. Do you know what? I'm actually feeling really flat. Like, we've just had a really nice Christmas period. Now we're all back to working from home where we can. And I'm just not feeling motivated about it. January is a bit of a blue month anyway. Mm. Like you said, you know, the weather's rubbish. You're too fat because you've eaten all of the Christmas sweets and things like that. So you, There's so much pressure to go out there and dry January and, and go out and get fit and join the gym and create a new you and a new body. And actually, do you know what? That's the last thing that I want to think about in January. And I think the other thing that I've recognised as well is that that loneliness of working from home on the laptop with nobody else about. Some people find that heaven. I find that hell. And I've really noticed it over the last few weeks. I'm an extrovert and I get all of my energy off of people. And I do find that my partner's noticed it as well when he comes home and I haven't seen anybody. I've had no deliveries from the postman through the door. I've got to that stage where, you know, the postman's almost my best friend and the cat's going, will you please stop talking to me? He walks through the door and <laughs> and in the evening, he's like just had a busy day at work. He's been interacting with people because he's been in the office and seen people. So he's all right. Yeah. Um, and he comes through the door and I go, blah, 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 and he's like, oh, my God. You can... And he says to me, are you going into the office this week? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, <laughs> you've forgotten it as well, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs>